Here's a quick word from our football educational partners over at the Scouting Academy. Listen, we've said it all the time. If you love the analysis and you're passionate about football, then you really need to check out the Scouting Academy. Whether you're a football coach, aspiring writer, or even aspiring football agent, the Scouting Academy is really a perfect place for you to learn and develop your skills as an analyst. With curriculum that spans over 375 years of coaching and personnel experience, the Scouting Academy offers you a 16-week online course that you can tailor and build to meet your needs and your interests. Whether you're learning about wide receivers or defensive linemen, you can make the experience what you want it to be. Listen, I've said it to you on this podcast many times. I've spent my own money, my own time, and time away from my friends and family because I am just this passionate about this game. And the Scouting Academy is the place where I really feel like I've learned the most I've ever learned about the game of football. It's made me a better analyst. It's made me a better person in terms of the coaching I do on the field. I can't say enough great things about it. If you have any questions about the Scouting Academy, please don't hesitate to reach out to Dan Hatman on Twitter or reach out to the Scouting Academy online via email. I'm open to all questions as well. Heck, I'm still even a student there myself. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I really think that once you learn all the tools and gain the knowledge that they have to offer, I really think you're going to be absolutely excited about the game of football again. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and once again, joining me this evening is Mr. Matt Waldman. You didn't listen to part one discussing the landing spots of the quarterbacks and the running backs. I highly recommend you doing that. Matt is gracious enough to join me again to talk about the pass catchers tonight. So, Matt, welcome back once again to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure. Let's get this rolling. It's going to be a good conversation. Absolutely. So, I'm going to start with the tight ends because I always feel like the tight ends get shafted. Not enough discussion about the tight ends at times. And I think this is such a fascinating tight end class. And we talked a little bit about it in the pre-draft episode when you came on S2S. But let's start right there at the top. Hawkinson, Fant, Irv Smith. Who are you most excited about their landing spot? Obviously, Hawkinson top 10. Fant goes 20 to the Broncos and then Irv Smith in the second round to the Vikings. Is there one or two in particular you really are intrigued by the landing spot? Yeah, I think it's Hawkinson and Smith. And I know that, you know, my buddy Sigmund Bloom is kind of, we talked about on the audible, you know, I I joked with him last week that he's telling ghost stories um, because he's been talking about Daryl Bevel and how much that he's anti tight end and how he made Jimmy Graham, uh, you know, a non-fantasy factor. And when I did that research, you know, Daryl Bevel was in the was with the Seahawks and Graham for three years. And two of those years, Graham was t- tight end two and tight end four. So I, I think it was a little bit more of a ghost story um, than it was a, a reality. And even before that, when Daryl Bevel was with the Vikings, Pasante Shianko had two years of, of top 10 production. Um, and Shianko was not really a well-rounded tight end, you know, or – uh, you know, a top end tight end. 
So those were the two stops that Bevel's been an offensive coordinator, and he's been able to get, you know, when he's had the talent, he's been able to make the most of that tight end talent. So you look at the the Detroit Lions, and let's remember, I mean, Eric Ebron had some untimely drops in bad moments, even though maybe Calvin Johnson had a more bigger drop rate than Eric Ebron did during that time. That was my buddy um, Scott Bischoff, who also writes for the RSP at times, will, you know, mention to me the other day, and there's kind of a recency bias or some bias that people had when they saw Eric Ebron's drops and didn't look at that. But Ebron had some untimely ones, and there were some issues probably in terms of them feeling like he was doing everything he could to maximize his uh, his talent. But, you know, beyond him, they haven't really had a good tight end since Brandon Pettigrew early on in Pettigrew's career, and he was a he was a 20th overall pick in the same draft that uh, Matthew Stafford was the first overall pick. And when Matthew Stafford had his career year with 5,038 yards, um, Brandon Pettigrew was a top 10 tight end in fantasy. So, you know, to me, you can say all you want about Matthew Stafford in terms of some erratic decision-making and some things with mechanics that people get upset about because he'll take chances and risks that he shouldn't. But let's also remember that beyond Calvin Johnson for a long time, he really didn't have a lot. And, and he's also had a lot of different coordinators and, and so a lot of things have kind of happened where he's often put the ball in places where he needed receivers to be able to make the play so that they can continue to, you know, drive down the field or make a pivotal moment to, to get in position to win the game. And his receivers didn't come through for him. Um, so having a guy like Hawkinson, that expands the offense because I love how they're going to be able to use him as an H-back, as an inline blocker, and as a receiver in line as well as detached from the formation. And that gives – um, you know, Stafford more options. And Hawkinson was the guy who got bracketed more often compared to him and Fant. He was the one bracketed in the fourth quarter by defenses. So he's the guy that they tried to stop the most and they were the most worried about. So I really like what he's going to do because I think he's going to open up the running game. Offensive linemen won't have to double team as much or for as long. They won't, um, they won't have to try and help out someone and they can stick with some of the assignments that they do have. They can get further downfield because of Hawkinson doing good work that opens up the run game, which in turn makes the pass um, play action passing game more effective. So I like him there. Irv Smith hasn't had a strong OTA sessions at this point from what they say, but it's OTAs. So, uh, you know, I like his blocking ability. I think he's going to develop into a good blocker in the NFL. He's, I think he's the best runner after the catch of this group, even though no offense faster, I think, that Smith is a guy who actually has more balance. He he transitions faster. He makes quicker turns so that he gets downfield fast. And a lot of good athletes don't do that because they're used to being able to outrun people going laterally. And the trick is, is that you really just have to turn and get downhill. And that's something that a lot of young, great athletes who get um, – from, you know, basically a lot of buzz and hype for their after catchability often fail at and they lose yards in the NFL because they don't know how to do that. Smith does it well, very smooth pass catcher. And I think that the the Vikings, you know, one thing Kirk Cousins has always been able to do is target his tight end. He's been pretty good at being able to do that. And you can see with Kirk Cousins, his game, he may get a lot of criticism for bad decisions that he makes at pivotal moments. And I, I've kind of labeled him, uh, and I hate to say it this way, but uh, a a high, a highly productive loser. And I don't mean that in a, you know, a personal sense, but in a guy that he doesn't always make the winning football decisions that you want to see. And he makes some erratic plays, but he's always good to be able to put you in position to stay competitive 
because of his highly productive uh, ability. The problem with him too is that he can be inconsistent because he's had, you know, he I think he had a several games below 220 yards passing last year, despite the fact that he also had, I think, five or six games over 300 yards. So he's either really good or he can be really bad at moments um, for you. But Smith is a guy that kind of stabilizes this offense and give another dimension where teams have to figure things out. So those two guys I like a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you, Hawkinson. Still my tight end one like it was pre-draft. I'm... I think that he's going to be utilized in a lot of different ways in that offense. I'm excited for the landing spot. I think he is going to be a focal point in that Lions offense. They want to run a lot. Hawkinson's going to be on the field blocking a lot, but also a lot of play action is going to come off of that. A lot of different things they can do with Hawkinson. I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a major red zone weapon right off the bat in year one. And Irv Smith is a guy that, he doesn't he seems to have a lot of detractors i'll 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 put it at that that people just found reasons to dislike him pre-draft and and i think now people you know even like you mentioned the otas like i feel like it's otas it's like the first set of otas like it's it's really you know and people are really kind of jumping on that and I know we talked about Irv Smith a lot on the first time you were on the show before the draft. And, you know, Matt and I were big fans of Irv Smith. I thought he was the most pro-ready in terms of his route running and his route refinement. And then you talked about after the catch. I, I still see a scenario. Now, I know there's some talk about maybe extending Kyle Rudolph. That would be really weird to give him a long-term extension, I think, if they invested in Irv Smith in 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 round two. So I'm kind of hoping Irv Smith gets an opportunity there because I don't think he's somebody – I think he is somebody that could actually transition pretty quickly and, and make an impact at the NFL level. Uh, so it's going to be fun to follow that. And obviously Noah Fan, I think, is going to be a big weapon there in Denver. Uh, probably going to be asked to do a lot. I don't really love – the collection of wide receivers they have there, obviously a lot of unproven ones. So fans probably going to get force fed a lot of opportunities. It's just kind of like what we talked about, I think pre-draft as well is that we just, I know I have some concerns about his overall route running and route refinement. I think there's a little bit of a learning development that has to go on there. Do you still see that even with fan in the Denver landing spot? Oh yeah. As well as fighting the football a little bit. So now, now they've got two players who have the same issues in Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant, and maybe Sutton will have figured it out in the postseason, in the you know in the off season between last year and this year, and and take that next step. But one of the things that held him back, as Chris Harris said, you know, in August, he can't he doesn't run the full route tree. He's not a he's not a complete route runner. And then you saw the drops at the end of the year, you know, when he really took over from starting. Um, you know, took over the starting role when Demarius Thomas left. So. Fant's going to get a lot of targets. He's going to convert on some of them. He's going to make some big plays, but I also think you're going to see him struggle at certain points where he should have made plays that he didn't. And so it is, it's a situation where the promise is there, but he's going to need more time. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I agree with that. The next tier, I so to speak, is is Jay Sternberger, Cahill Waring, Dawson Knox, and Josh Oliver. I think the case can be made that the landing spots for each of them has some uniqueness and intriguingness of it. Green Bay, Sternberger with Aaron Rodgers. You know, Houston's been trying to get a tight end. Maybe Warren is that guy that can kind of grow and develop with Watson. Buffalo is in need of playmakers. Dawson Knox, 
Josh Oliver in Jacksonville. Nick Foles utilizes the tight end a lot. All of these guys got some draft capital in the top 100 attached to them. Is there one or two guys that you even in particular like the landing spot and the fit more than others? Yeah, I mean, I think Jay Sternberger's spot is really good because I think he's a quick learner and he's going to develop fast. And he's on a team where they're going to start running outside zone. They're going to run more of what you see with the 49ers and the Atlanta Falcons did in recent years, which means a lot of bootlegs. You're going to see the the concept being shown a lot on Twitter recently, which is leak, the leak concept, which is where you get to leak the tight end out into deeper routes and with some misdirection. And they get open, wide open down the field, up the flats or the seams. And Jay Sternberger has that kind of speed to do that. And if you hit him early, you know, later in the route, he'll get separation. If you hit him early in the route, well, he's going to run through people and drag people. He's a physical runner. He, he just needs to improve on some of the fine points of um, leverage as a blocker and some and fine points of releasing off the line of scrimmage. I know he's working um, with Drew Lieberman the sideline hustle, the the former Rutgers wide receiver coach um, or assistant wide receiver coach. Um, and you can, you, you know, he's a guy that I would definitely follow on Twitter, um, the sideline hustle, just to say that again. And so, I mean, Sternberger is a good fit, and I think that he'll develop in a year or two and may be able to challenge the, the first three guys that we mentioned in that top tier. I really like the Foster Moreau fit because I don't think there's really anything there in terms of what Moreau has to offer for the Raiders on that depth chart. I mean, certainly they got Tyrone was a not swoop, Eric Swope. They got from the, um, from the Colts recently, but he's not a complete player on the level that Foster Moreau can be. Lee Smith is a good blocker and a short range receiver at best. Um, so their carriers, a journeyman who, who can give you competent, um, zone work as a receiver, but he's not great as a blocker. But Foster Moreau's known as a blocker. He's physical, and then he surprised everybody with his ability, you know, his athletic ability at the combine. But that was there. It was there to see. And he, like Dawson Knox, he he's a better receiver than how he was used at LSU because they ran the ball a lot. So he and Dawson Knox, you know, with obviously with Tyler Croft getting hurt, Knox gets an extended opportunity to beat out Jason Kroom and maybe even start the season. Um, so he's another nice one that I that I think is a good good option there. Um, and there's one other guy that's not getting mentioned. I'm, I don't like the Cahill Waring fit. Um, in theory, I do because it's an explosive offense, um, and and Cahill Warren is a really nice looking prospect in terms of athletic ability and promising baseline of technical skills that he can work, he can build on. But Bill O'Brien hasn't authored a top 15 fantasy tight end since he's been a head coach. Um, so yeah, he came from Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez in terms of new England, but now he runs his own system and um, you know, Jordan Thomas and, and Atkins are, are pretty good prospects in my eyes. So KL Warren might be able to be better than them combined, but they also liked CJ Fedorowicz a lot. I've heard from a Scott that they liked him a lot and he authored their best production as, as tight end 17 in one year. So there's a lot. I just don't know if they're going to be able to use him to that degree. A fit I really do like that may seem odd is because I've been such a fan of Trevon Wesco. You look at the jets and you think, yeah, they have Chris Hernan, and Chris Hernan had a good season, but also the Jets dealt with a lot of injuries, and they needed somebody to throw the ball to. And it's not that Hernan is bad, but I thought he was, you know, 
the, the way they took advantage of him, there wasn't anything special they did with him. Seam routes, short passes, screen passes, let him run down the field a little bit. He did a good job with that. But Trevon Wesco, to me, is a is a more versatile player, better blocker. That's going to help this offensive line that really wants to run the ball with Le'Veon Bell. He's going to be a lead blocker as a fullback, H-back, inline guy. And they keep talking about how underrated of a receiver he is, and I can tell you that that's something I definitely saw. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he turns into being kind of like Sam Darnold's Heath Miller, you know, where Heath Miller in his good year fantasy years for – Ben Roethlisberger often was a checkdown option who got yards after the catch, you know, kind of hanging around near the line of scrimmage. And when things went off kilter, he could always check it down to, to Heath Miller. Well, Sam Darnold's that same kind of player. He's a he's a bit of a gunslinger, and he tries to buy time and make off court throws. And if you know you got a guy just kind of hanging out near the line of scrimmage who's your extra blocker because Dana Holgerson described him as a sixth member of the offensive line and was their best player on the team, literally said that. Um, you know, and we all like Will Greer, and then you see the other receivers they had, and they described that as the case. Why wouldn't he hang at the line of scrimmage on passing plays and be a blocker? And then as pressure comes, slip out of the backfield, get the ball, and use that quickness and, and acceleration to make the first man miss or run through a tackle and get nice gains. Next thing you know, this guy's caught like 60 balls for like, you know, 550 yards and has a, has a few touchdowns, and you're like, that's a pretty darn good bargain for a guy that nobody's drafting at all um, in fantasy leagues. I wouldn't be shocked at all if all at all if he's one of the three or four best rookie producers this year at the tight end position and nobody's talking about him. Yeah, I mean, Wesco is the guy I was going to bring up if you didn't mention him right there. I do think it's an intriguing spot, and I really hadn't even thought of that or heard anyone else make the Heath Miller comparison. I think it's a very apt comparison that could kind of uh, kind of happen as we as he gets an opportunity and and gets an up and gets a chance there because he is a guy Sam Darnold seems to like that middle part of the field between the numbers he seems very comfortable throwing there and Wesco could be end up becoming a little bit of that security blanket there to kind of be Darnold's check down guy keep the chains moving so I think that's a really good comparison there Wesco to a guy like Keith Miller in terms of usage one last tight end I want to bring up because no one's really talking about him. And I, I want to see what your take is and see if we can make some sense of this. What do you think the Bengals were, if they were thinking, what do you think their thinking and their thought process was to invest a second round pick in Drew Sample? It seems a little rich for a guy who many think good blocker, average or below average, if I'm being nice, receiver. Do you think they see more receiving upside and potential, kind of like you were talking about Foster Moreau before? Do you think the Bengals see that? Because I'm 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 struggling to see where Zach Taylor for what he wants to offense he wants to run from the Rams, where he looks at and sees Drew Sample as a big cog in that offense. Well, you know, I mean, certainly I didn't see Sample stand out especially well at the Senior Bowl when we watched him. He wasn't bad. I thought that he did a decent job being able to catch the football and getting downfield. But he wasn't, 
he didn't stand out and he didn't, he didn't show the athletic ability I would have thought. So I do wonder if there were, you know, I didn't know that hallucinogenics were like legal in, in Mobile, Alabama, um, but maybe they were and maybe, you know, but to be honest, I, I guess they, maybe they placed a high priority on blocking. Maybe they looked at it and said, maybe the thing we need to do is we got to get the ball, give the ball to Joe Mixon as much as possible. And if he gets hurt, we need to find another running back. Well, Hey, listen, we got Anderson. We can get, you know, Rodney Anderson. He might be able to give us a little Joe Mixon there too, if he gets healthy. And if that doesn't work, we still have Giovanni Bernard and, and heck, if we have to get that low, we can take our chances with Travion Williams. And, you know, he runs hard for his size. So we've got four running backs who are pretty capable on our roster Let's Tyler Eifert's always hurt. Let's get a rugged guy in there who can block and be a part of that line and help out our offensive line in a way where maybe you know we're not able to get the best lineman always, or maybe able to we haven't hit on linemen. But if we can get a guy who can be that sixth member of the line, that'll help our pass protection. It'll also help our run game, and we'll we'll go more with three receiver sets. We'll go more with you know Tyler Boyd in the slot and work with him and we can we can deal with that and and maybe not be as dynamic at the tight end position but know that we're safe and it seems to me that the philosophy with the Cincinnati Bengals has always been kind of I don't want to say conservative football but they make some conservative decisions about players and maybe that comes to onto the idea of being a conservative team in terms of how they spend money and the actions that they that they make as a management group yeah, I mean, I think the the point about Joe Mixon and maybe maybe that's what I'm kind of missing is that Zach Taylor is going to come there and he's going to want to make Joe Mixon the focal point of that entire offense. And he could look at it as we need a reliable, good blocking tight end to, you know, they added Jonah Williams in round one and then they added Drew Sample in round two, one of the better blocking tight ends in the class. So he might be looking at it as that's the point where we're going to build everything off of that to kind of get Andy Dalton, you know, fix that a little bit to take an opportunity, play action, take some vertical shots to John Ross, do some other things with AJ Green. Like you said, Tyler Board in the slot. And they might have just emphasized a high priority on a guy who they might think is probably in their I would assume in their perspective that they probably thought he was the best blocker then in the class, maybe besides obviously like a guy like Hawkinson, they might've looked at, at sample in terms of availability in round two, he's the best, you know, guy left and we're going to go for him. So I think it's, was definitely a little bit of an outlier compared to I think many other people's thoughts. So we'll kind of sure. see if it ends up uh, panning out for them and maybe there is some average, you know, untapped receiving potential that we just haven't really seen yet or because he wasn't maybe given the opportunity. So we'll have to follow that one. So let's take this to the wide receivers because the wide receivers, I think, is as confusing post-draft as it was pre-draft. That's been my take on it as a whole. There seems to still be very little consensus in terms of who people are excited. Some people are excited about this guy. Other people are excited about that guy. And there's a lot of uncertainty I want to start with you with the two Baltimore guys because I think they're really fascinating to kind of make sense of from a football perspective in terms of they're probably going to get a lot of opportunity real quick to be focal points of that receiving game. And then in terms of production, you know, in that offense as a whole, you know, how will any of those guys develop fantasy-wise? I think there's so much to kind of unpack there. 
What is your thoughts on Marquise Brown and Miles Boykin? You know, two picks there in the in the first three rounds there for Baltimore at the wide receiver position. Short term, I'm not expecting a ton from both of them. Though one of them, I think, will have a stronger have a fairly strong year if they can stay healthy. One or the other depends on who stays healthy. Long term, I'm invested in both of them, and I'm good with it. And I, it's because I am a believer in Lamar Jackson. Um, I believe that Lamar Jackson, um, basically, if you look at his game, you know, a lot of people look at him and say, oh, well, his pass percentage was low. He throws some wobbly footballs. You, you know, he took a lot of sacks. Okay. Well, all those things you can explain pretty well and and talk about development and be excited, still be excited about him. One about the sacks. We talked about earlier in the first part of this show, in the first um, show that we did, you know, last week um, or the last segment that we did is Lamar Jackson hangs in the pocket as well as any player in the league in terms of being able to stand in there and make small adjustments. The reason he does that, he knows that when pressure gets within basically a hand's reach of him, he's quick enough to be able to avoid it. The problem is, is that he may hang in a little bit too long at times. Um, And players who have, great elusiveness mobility in terms of built into their game tend to push the envelope in um, to its breaking point until, and especially when they start in the NFL, they usually have to recalibrate how tight that compressed pocket can be before they, they can escape. So I think Jackson had to relearn that just in the same way that Steve Young had to relearn it when he came into the league. Okay, so there's that. Then there's a fact that Joe Flacco ran the same rushing offense as Lamar Jackson. They just didn't have all the option fakes with it, but the blocking was the same. The routes for the receivers were the same, too. The difference is, is that there wasn't all this read op. There weren't all these option reads and play fakes and ball fakes that were embedded into what Flacco was doing. So the timing between Flacco and the receivers was different than it was with Lamar Jackson. So Jackson's timing was off with his receivers because he didn't have, you know, all training camp to have first team reps with those receivers over and over again to get that timing down. Flacco did, you know, he only got some of that time. And then, then he had to come in in midseason and, and basically the receivers had to adjust with them. They were already behind the curve. So that was, that was an issue. The Chargers game. I mean, listen. The, the the Ravens were already in the mode of, we're going to let the run game win for us, and if we keep things close, we're good to go with this game plan, and we're not going to let Lamar Jackson, we're not going to put it in Lamar Jackson's hands in the playoffs unless we absolutely have to. And they waited until the fourth quarter to do that. And yeah, the, the Chargers played a defense that you would see in the fourth quarter of some games, but Lamar Jackson still made some great decisions and put them within um, a winning position. And if they had done that a little bit earlier in the game, who knows? They might have won that game. It wasn't that Lamar Jackson was bad or that they didn't trust Jackson on the whole as a passer as much as that they, the game plan had been working all the way up until that game, you know, being more of a run oriented team. So they wanted to win with that first. So this year, yeah, Greg Roman's changing things around. Okay. And we heard some things about communication with that and, you know, and that was a surprise to Jackson and, and people, you know, wonder about what's going, what, what that's all about. And you heard the ESPN article where he was throwing wobbly passes 
And I laugh about that because the title was about wobbly passes, but you had to get to like the final paragraphs of the, of the piece to actually hear about that. Um, because that's not what the piece was actually about, but the editors decided clickbait, let's do some clickbait for, um, Lamar Jackson. And, you know, that, that's how they did it. Um, because really he was talking about something that's pretty correctable and easy to do and, and easy to fix. And he was just being hard on himself. He was making good throws in camp. They, they were even writing about that in the article, you know? So I, I look at this and this offense is still going to be, ba- um, you know, based on option reads, lots of different option fakes. You're going to have these jet, you're going to incorporate jet sweep into the um, equation probably with Marquise Brown. Um, you're also going to have um, instances where because he's linebackers and safeties have to play the run, guess who's going to sneak behind them on slants, on crossing routes, on dig routes, um, on short posts and things like that both those receivers and both those receivers are extremely skilled after the catch. So I like Marquise Brown more this year in theory, if his foot's healthy, we just don't know if the foot's going to is healthy enough for him to be able to go. If it is, I think he's going to be the main star of this offense, but I would, I would not be surprised at all if miles Boykin has the better and longer career because he is a more sturdily built receiver he has excellent hands that were overshadowed by the fact that he played with broken fingers his first two years of his career in at Notre Dame and had a little bit of trouble catching the ball because he played through that. When his fingers were healthy, guess what? Well, he had a fine year, and now everyone's calling him a one-year wonder. Well, you know what? It's That's how it goes. I remember Marvin Jones, a player I always talk about a lot, being a, a great deep threat for the for Cal as a sophomore. And then as a junior and a senior, when Keenan Allen came in, they moved him to a possession type of role. And then everyone, nobody seemed to want to pay attention to the fact that at the senior bowl, he was whipping the uh, a really highly touted cornerback group in the senior bowl and practices, just torching them route after route after route in the vertical game. And everybody was like, he's still, everybody's like, he's a possession receiver. It's just practice, you know? Um, so, I look at this and I think Boykin's been a victim of, you know, of um, cursory superficial scouting. And I think he's a guy that could very well be very strong after the catch who could wind up being the best receiver of this class, if not the best, you know, and maybe even the best receiver long-term in Baltimore. And I think that you're going to see a, another move forward with Jackson. It may not be a leap, but I think he'll be closer to 60% passing. I think he's going to throw for a lot more yards and touchdowns. I think you're going to see big plays from both these receivers who are going to get the ball in space on quick hitting passes and be able to get yards after the catch, as well as big plays like chunk plays on vertical passes off play action because defenses get caught having to play the run. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. I'm. These guys are not guys that maybe I want to invest in right now in fantasy, but in terms of real life, I think they could bring a lot of value immediately to that offense because they're going to have to be accounted for. Both Marquise Brown and Miles Boykin are guys that can win vertically down the field in different ways. You know, obviously Marquise Brown with that blazing speed, Miles Boykin combines the speed with the ability to high point the ball and win in the air. You know, those two guys, they they got Justice Hill 
we didn't even talk about him in part one at, at the running back position, more speed, big plate threat. They've added a lot of team speed on that. And they and defenses already had to account for Lamar Jackson and his running ability. Well, now you have legitimate playmakers that they did not have in any capacity. They have a much more polished running back in, in Mark Ingram there as well. So it's a much better offense and I think much more explosive playmakers around Lamar Jackson than what he was working with last year. And it is, it has been amazing. It's amazing how quickly people want to bury rookies or guys now who are going to their second year so quickly. Lamar Jackson took the reins and, and led them to the playoffs and people still, you know, want to make very, you know, definitive statements and conclusions about what he can and can't be in terms of his passing ability. Last year, they were winning football games. They weren't going to change what they were doing at that moment. And they didn't really have much to work with in terms of John Brown was probably their best playmaker, you know? So I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm not ready to even remotely think that Lamar Jackson can improve as a passer and be a productive passer. And now with the weapons that he has on the outside, I'm intrigued by the fact that it's going to open up, I think, a lot of different things because it's going to make the running game even more effective because teams aren't going to be able to stack eight, nine guys in the box like we saw you know, the Chargers doing at times in that playoff game because you're going to have to account for Marquise Brown and Miles Boykin. And if they do move up that much, well, Lamar Jackson's going to take his shots vertically, and, and both Marquise Brown and Miles Boykin are guys that can win down the field vertically. So I think they, those guys bring a tremendous tactical value, a lot of skill and talent in their own right. And I think it's going to, we're going to see some steps from Lamar Jackson. Like you said, maybe they're not monumental in this year, but I think we're going to continue to see development and progress from him to be a guy who could be a starting caliber, you know, good quarterback all around and not just that running ability this year. So I'm excited about that, I think, equally as you. Let's take this to another pair of wide receivers that were drafted, and this is by the 49ers. Debo Samuel, top of second round, and then Jalen Hurd at the end of round three. We talked about Jalen Hurd when you were on before uh, the draft about him being a very intriguing prospect. I don't remember. I don't recall us talking about Debo Samuel much. He was a guy that I know I was intrigued by. He was at the back end of my top five. What do you make of Debo and Hurd in that 49er offense? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it looks like Debo's going to start right away. looks like they're going to make Marquise Goodwin basically a role player because I don't think they can trust him to stay healthy being a track athlete, probably a little tightly wound and, and the recurring injuries and in, of the NFL game, you know, in terms of the, the stress and pressure may not be what his body was really built for. I don't know. That's a, that's a big speculation, but, but we know that the actions kind of fit that speculation, even if that's not the actual reason. Um, so Samuel, you know, it looks like he's probably be a split end, you know, probably going to put Dante Pettis at flanker and both of them will work inside, not the slot, you know, probably both do that and alternate with Trent Taylor and maybe Richie James, um, depending on who wins that competition or how they want to split that up. That's good for the 49ers because all really all those receivers can play different positions. I mean, I think Pettis and Samuel both can play all three positions on the field. So that gives them some versatility and that that's going to be very helpful for them. Samuel, I worry about his ability to separate and, you know, and not, 
in terms of speed, but in terms he's got great footwork, but I've never seen him use his hands. Like I've, I, or maybe not never, but rarely see him use his hands to separate. And he didn't need to in the college game, except when I watched him at the senior bowl. And, you know, one of the most telling um, exercises I always see every year at the senior bowl of any position is when they do these one-on-ones and usually they either put cones, um, you know, on either side and they have to separate within the, the, the width of these cones or they use a five yard marker, each of the five, you know, each of the lines in the five yard span and say, you have to separate and you can't get pushed outside these lines or you lose the drill. And, you know, I talk about Marvin Jones. He was very good at it. He was a very good receiver and being able to do that. Um, when I watched um, Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup was the best I've ever seen do that at, at the Senior Bowl, his ability to separate. He had a library of different moves. Last year, none of the receivers in that class did well. <laughs> none of them. Over and over again, they got pushed out of bounds or they got jammed. David Sills looked like looked like he was in kindergarten learning how to read, you know, and he was a guy who could get separation at UV, at West Virginia. Samuel might have been the best guy and he didn't use his hands well. And he got, and it took him several attempts before he was the first guy along with Jacksonville receiver, free agent, Tyree Brady. They were the only two that actually earned some decent level of separation off the line in that drill. And when the receivers can't do that, I'm, I have some concerns. So I wonder how good he's going to be right off the bat as just purely an X receiver against top corners. But I think they'll move him around enough that he'll give you some production the same way that Calvin Ridley was protected a little bit um, by Atlanta, and he came through and made some big plays. I think you're going to see the same thing for Samuel where, um, you know, he's getting his yardage in the same way that maybe Ridley or Kenny Galladay get theirs, which was being protected and not being jammed um, and getting open and maybe drawing coverage against um, defenders where they have mismatches. Um, So I like – I like him to maybe give you some borderline wide receiver three production this year at best, but I'm not counting on him to be a top 15 receiver. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think those are, those are some valid points there. I mean, he's a guy who I don't think he has, he's, he's a guy who's going to be a solid productive wide receiver. I don't see a guy who is going to be, like you said, be a transcendent talent, be a guy who is going to be able to beat double teams, be that guy that you build an offense around. So I'm right there with you. I think he's more of a consistent, you kind of know what you're getting, a safer type of wide receiver, but a guy who could be a very productive NFL wide receiver in, in like what you're talking about there. So I'm, I'm spot on there with you. What do you think they're going to do with Hurt? Any ideas? No, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> completely puzzled when they said he's a wide receiver or tight end kind of like <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like you know are they you know at the rate these running backs are getting injured they may just move him back there you know and use him there but I'd rather see him in a gap scheme than in a than in an outside zone um but then again he's learned enough quickness with his footwork as a receiver that he might be able to do it now as opposed to what he looked like at Tennessee but Maybe they look at him as an H-back. Maybe they see him as an Aaron Hernandez type. I know that's overstated, and nobody likes to hear Aaron Hernandez's name. We're talking about football, folks. It's okay. Let's not have any trigger warnings here. Um, you, you know, it's you know we're looking at a guy who may be able to provide that combination of receiver, 
runner, blocker, inline player, fullback who who can do it all for you. And and maybe that's what they're looking at because George Kittle, I mean, great inline blocker, great receiver, good runner after the catch. Why not Hurd and Kittle be that that tight end tandem that they can they can give that kind of um you know multiple look and especially when your receivers can all play three different positions you know and then you could move him outside and he can play flanker or split end eventually and he worked mostly as a big slot last year so i think he's more of a utility player and i'm hoping that as a utility player he's not doesn't turn into a gadget player because i always joke that gadget players you know that gadgets get lost in couch cushions but utility then again utility utility devices tend to get lost in like you know get lost under the car seat cushions and things like that but uh, at the same token i know some folks who you know some old men with their uh, their truck driver hats wear them on their belts you know and never seem to lose them whatsoever so let's hope that Kyle Shanahan has a little bit of that old that old farmhand kind of um, mentality about him and and is able to you know, keep Jalen Hurd on the belt of this belt loops of this offense. And, and he can be, you know, very handy for them. Yeah. And, and you do wonder if his very ambiguous answer of he's part this, he's part that, is it being honest or is it just a little <laughs> gamemanship? Like he yes. has, he has a plan in place. He knows, you know, he pounded the table for a top 100 pick to be used on this guy because he sees something and he's going to kind of keep it under wraps until, you know, you know, the, the spotlights yeah. on of, of a regular season game. So you, you wonder, you wonder if it's a little gamemanship going on there and, and hopefully so. I mean, you would like to think if you're, you're investing a top 100 pick and I mean, there were really good players players out there right you know Hakeem Butler was staring out there if they wanted that yeah. and you know and a lot of other really good players receivers if that's what they wanted or other tight ends even you know that, that they could have went there uh in instead of Jalen Hurd so you'd like to think that they do have hopefully a clear defined role that they want to use him in and maybe he's just kind of keeping that under wraps in, in terms of ideal landing spots, I think two that are being talked about a lot. I know one I think is one of the best, and we talked about him as him not getting the credit he deserved before the draft and him his overall skill set being a little underappreciated, and that was Paris Campbell. Absolutely loved the landing spot to the Colts. I wanted to hear what you thought about that. And then a lot of people really seem to be enamored with Deontay Johnson landing in Pittsburgh. Johnson was a guy who I was surprised how high he was drafted. He was a guy Matt and I talked about at SS for a while as a guy that we thought was a little bit of a under-the-radar sleeper for somewhere on day three. So we were kind of surprised to see him you know, go a little bit earlier than that. But Pittsburgh seemed to be high on him. There seems to be a little bit of buzz of people liking that landing spot, obviously, because Antonio Brown left. So there's a lot of targets to be had there. What do you think about Campbell with the Colts and Johnson with the Steelers? I love the Campbell pick for the Colts because, you know, as we talked about, he's not raw. He, you know, he's not a raw player. He just didn't have to run all the routes in the route tree, but the routes that he ran often translated to what you see from all the routes in the route tree, if that, you know what I mean? I mean, his ability, some of the breaks that he was able to execute, even though he didn't do them off and he did them so cleanly that you look at that and go, Oh, well, he's not going to have a problem running these dig routes or comebacks or curls. Um, he's going to be able to do that just fine. He, he just may not run them as often that, or all of them in Ohio state. 
fine, whatever. Comes into camp, they're like, he can run the full route tree. We're thrilled with him. We liked him before. We're even happier with him now. I mean, that's pretty much the attitude that you see with him. He's going to probably play in the slot right away or used at flanker on occasion. You're probably going to see, you know, you're probably going to see Funchess. I would think Funchess would be more of like a split end or a flanker. Um, he's not much of a runner after the catch, I don't think, necessarily. So I don't see him as a flanker necessarily. But, you know, again, T.Y. Hilton, you know, it depends on where they move T.Y. Hilton and move him around. But the, the point being is long-term, Paris Hilton could wind up being kind of like the Keenan Allen of this uh, of this offense for, for the Colts. And, you know, so I really love the pick. I think he's going to be an impact player right away. I wouldn't be surprised – if he's up there with Nikhil Harry and AJ Brown as as guys who have have a high impact this year, Deontay Johnson's interesting. I, you know, honestly, heading into this season, I had him among my top twelve to fifteen receivers, um, and then I watched his twenty eighteen season, and he couldn't get separation consistently. He was he wasn't running great routes. He was dropping the ball. He was having difficulty against tighter physical coverage against better players. And it was more about consistency more than anything. He just wasn't as consistent as what I saw from him in the past. Even the effort wasn't always as consistent as I wanted to see. But his junior year, one of the things that I saw out of him that was really strong was his ability to take difficult, find solutions. He found solutions. That's what, as Matt always would talk about, you find him in situations where maybe he slips during a route but he understands how to regain his form quickly using, um, you know, methods that you learn in football, like, you know, balance touch, be able to balance touch through a slip on a route and get right back up and make a catch and then transition quickly downfield. You know, someone who thinks fast and processes fast when things don't always go right. And when you see a player who does that, that's part of that. That's an example of that whole intangibles, you know, someone who finds, you know, to me, and it's a tangible thing, but I mean, people call it intangibles because they don't know how to explain it, but he has that ability. And to be able to combine these disparate techniques that you don't always use together in a drill, but then use them in a situation where other players would overthink it and they'd end up dropping the ball or not be able to even get to it. And he does it successfully. That's something that you'd see out of top players. You see that out of guys like Emmanuel Sanders. You see that out of Juju Smith-Schuster. You see that out of Antonio Brown. All guys drafted by the Steelers. You saw it out of Heinz Ward, drafted by the Steelers. So the Steelers kind of, I think the Steelers are looking for that. Whether they articulate that or not in the same way I do, they're looking for it. And they probably saw that in Deontay Johnson and decided, we're going to take a chance on this kid. We'll see if it works out. I'm still kind of in wait-and-see mode for this, um, but I understand how they got there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair points. And he definitely, I think... Pre, the previous season showed more, like you said, more separation, more explosion than we saw this past year. So it's like, you know, trying to find the balance of, well, which is it? it was there something that was preventing this year from him living up to the previous seasons? And then that's going to be something to kind of follow closely. I wanted to end the night with two UDFA wide receiver discussions, but you said something there while you were talking that I, I, just, I had to circle back to. Most people seem to be pretty down on where AJ Brown ended up, but I heard you kind of say you thought he might have a decent first year. 
Are you not as down on what the consensus seems to be about A.J. Brown in that Titans offense? A lot of question marks about Mariota, people questioning Brown because they thought he was best as a big slot, and they have at, they gave Adam Humphreys a nice contract this offseason. Where you kind of fall, do you kind of see that a little bit more positive than most people? Yeah, please leave me A.J. Brown in every draft. I will take <laughs> him. Um, I think A.J. Brown will have maybe the second best. He, he'll be one of the two to three best guys in this class this year in terms of um, options. And the reason is, is I'm not a huge Marcus Mariota fan. I've really never been a huge fan of his. I've been like, I think he could be decent, but I think he's he has some flaws that have continued to show up that I've pointed out in the past, and he hasn't overcome them yet. But here's the deal. Whether it's Marcus Mariota or Ryan Tannehill, both those guys did really well with slot receivers. But Marcus Mariota had Rashad Matthews. Um, Tannehill did too, but you know, but um, Marcus Mariota had him, and Matthews had an eleven hundred yard season with him, and then had another like I think had another seven or eight hundred yard season before that or after that, and you know they functioned really well together. And there, Harry Douglas was still there as a slot receiver that they liked to use. And I would say that Adam Humphreys and Harry Douglas aren't that far apart. Um, so you have to remember this too. A.J. Brown is not just a slot receiver. He could play flanker, and he probably will. And they'll probably move him around. They'll probably move him around so that when it's t- when Adam Humphreys is in the game, they'll put, um, they'll put Brown outside. But that doesn't mean that they won't both operate inside at, at certain moments. So – I see A.J. Brown being a high-volume player who's going to be leveraged in ways to get a lot of usage. And remember, they like to detach um, you know, Delaney Walker outside as well. So this team doesn't actually just – no team really just says, you're going here, you're going here, and you're going here, and this is only where you're operating from. They're going to mix and match and move them around, and Brown is that ultimate type of player who, who's going to be able to do a lot of different things. And I think he's going to catch a very high volume of passes. They said he already looks like the best receiver on the team early on. There were some thoughts about that. And even if, like, Mariota gets hurt again or fails, we know that Ryan Tannehill supported slot receivers. I mean, look at Jarvis Landry's career. I mean, so I look at it from that perspective, and and I think Brown is is just a very high-floor an even high ceiling pick because he's good in the red zone too. And he got overshadowed in the red zone a little bit because they had, when they, when they could, they could throw fade routes to DK Metcalf. Marcus Lodge was pretty good at fade routes too. But I think AJ Brown's going to be one of those players that we're going to start looking at him doing things. And it's going to look like he's been doing this stuff for years, but there's going to be people going, well, we didn't know that he could do that, you know, because we didn't see it all that often. But then you start watching and you're looking at him and go, this guy's a stud. He kind of like, to me, I don't know why I think of this player all the time because he's not an NFL player, but I always think of Magic Johnson. Like Magic Johnson could play in the low post. He could be a point guard. He'd be a shooting guard. He could be a center. He And he could play as well at all those positions wherever you called upon to do it. And I look at A.J. Brown and I think he's kind of that way for wide receivers. I think he can pretty much do anything and and be competent at least – competent at it against top defenders and be a guy that you could rely on if you needed to. I think he's going to be a star in the league. 
Yeah, I loved A.J. Brown. He was my number one wide receiver pre-draft. And I love the fact that you talked about how he's versatile to do anything. I think the excitement over D.K. Metcalf, and I, and I get why, the height, the speed, all that stuff. But when you really, when people watched Ole Miss, they really ran a lot of that offense through A.J. Brown. He They seemed to put a lot more on his plate. D.K. Metcalf had his role, and he was great at it when he was on the field. But I think people kind of pigeonholed A.J. Brown to be a limited player for whatever reason in the pre-draft process. And I think here you talking about him and Matt and I tried to really hammer this home over the last year, basically during the college football season and then all the pre-draft months that AJ Brown was a much more versatile player than I think people were giving him credit for. So yeah, I'm a little down on the landing spot, but hearing you talk about it, I I always thought Corey Davis was a good prospect. that got overdrafted with a couple other wide receivers that year. And I think AJ Brown is a more talented player. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was showing out the best at camp already as the best wide receiver there, because I think on skill alone, he is the best wide receiver that they have, you know, probably right now. He's not as advanced in terms of the NFL game yet, maybe, but in terms of pure talent, I I think he is warrants being in that conversation. So Let's close out the night. I got to ask you, we know we know UDFA free agents are climbing a large mountain to make the roster right. to begin with and then ever even get an opportunity. But I look at the UDFA wide receivers and two guys who I know you were fans of as well stick out for me. And the first one is Stanley Morgan Jr. with the Bengals and then Preston Williams with the Dolphins. The the fact that Zach Taylor's there coming from the Rams with the Bengals, if Stanley Morgan Jr. gets a chance, I could see his versatility of being an inside player, outside player, flanker, slot, whatever you want to do with him, not being all that different than what Zach Taylor saw with the Rams of how Woods can play inside and outside, how Cooper Cup can play inside and outside, even Brandon Cooks you could do some different things with. Do we think Morgan Jr. do we think Stanley Morgan Jr. has a chance there? And then Preston Williams obviously take the off the field stuff out of it. Miami's depth chart seems to be kind of up for grabs in terms of they're giving Devontae Parker another chance. Kenny Stills kind of is who he is at this point, you know, and then Albert Wilson. I kind of see a path for both of these guys to make the roster, I think, and maybe get an opportunity. Yeah, I agree. And in deep leagues, I just I just wait till the draft's over and add those guys onto my roster until it's cut down time. And that's what I've been doing, along with a bunch of other UDFA wide receivers like, you know, Reggie White Jr. and Emmanuel Butler and a little Jordan Humphrey. I can name a number of guys that I've kind of like, let's just wait and see. Um, but Stanley Morgan Jr. Yeah, I love how you talked about Zach Taylor and the and the Rams offense. And another reason why Drew Sample might be added there, because how good, how how frequent did we see Gerald Everett or Tyler Higby's name called in the Rams offense in terms of tight end play? Not much. I mean, they if they were going to use tight ends, they used them as blockers more times than not. So why not go that route? Stanley Morgan, listen, um, I do think he has a chance because Lord knows we know that um, you, you know we know that Ross can't stay healthy. He has a difficult time being able to stay healthy. So, you know, and A.J. Green's aging. And then beyond that, you have guys who, you know, like Auden Tate, he's a limited player. I understand he can run some decent routes, 
I understand that he has some skills being able to go up and win the ball, but he, you know, he's not as versatile. You know, you kind of have to stick him in one spot. And that spot, to me, honest with you, is probably more of a big slot than anything else. Um, so that's not great. Um, and then you look at guys like Core, who hasn't really done anything more. You know, uh, Malone hasn't done anything more. You know, you think if they've really done been good, that they would have started to maybe eat into Ross's time or be guys who would have made a bigger impact. So, you know, with Ross being banged up, with A.J. Brown, um, Green being a little bit on the older side, and I think Green still has a few more years left, but um, even so, Morgan, I think, really gets a good chance. And Williams, I mean, Williams, I've joked around that if A.J. Green's the luxury model of a of a tall, thin, rangy, strong receiver with acrobatic ability and, and good route running and some skill after the catch to break more tackles than you'd expect, then, you know, our, our man Preston Williams is kind of like, if he's not the luxury model, he's kind of like the, the standard model, you know, and that means that he could be a starter in this league. You know, he can be a competent starter in this league, maybe even a top 25 player at the position for fantasy. Um, the, the, the biggest concern for me in Miami isn't the depth chart. I mean, I think he can, I think he's going to make the team is the only reason I don't think he'd make the team is if he truly hasn't matured as a human being. And if he, and, and Miami's a place where it's, it's right in your face, you know, as a young man, you know, I was there, it's right in your face. There's a lot of opportunities to party. There's a lot of opportunities to have a lot of fun. And, you, you know, as a result of that, you can get caught up in things that that young men often do, and so if he can, it's kind of like the ultimate test early. If he can, if he can do this, if he can make the team, and if he can um, make have some good games and get embraced by the city early, and not get caught up in all that, then you've got yourself a player. If he gets caught up in it early, he's going to get caught up. If it's if he, if he's going to succeed early, he's going to get tempted early and so we'll see whether he's matured whether or not football wise he's going to get that opportunity he's good enough to to show it it's just going to be off the field that's going to be the the next test so if you get him understand that it's not the the story's not over when he has a hundred yard game and a couple of touchdowns and beats a top cornerback and looks like a starter the story's going to be over the story's going to be at the point where you're going to say i can breathe easier after year two of being a good starter. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be fun to kind of watch both those UDFA guys. And you talked about it. There were so many of them. I was stunned at how few wide receivers were drafted this year, to be honest with you. I think it was like in like the mid-20s. And, you know, I know for the draft projections notebook that we do over here at s to s that was that was something where I was expecting in the mid 30s. So there was at least like another eight to 10, you know, wide receivers I thought would come off the board. So, you know, from Morgan Jr. to Preston Williams to to a bunch of other guys that are intriguing guys uh, that are going to get an opportunity. I mean, teams are, you know, five, six wide receiver deep. You know, they keep, you know, that many guys. So a lot of these UDFA guys, Emmanuel Hall in Chicago might get an opportunity. He was a guy that most people yeah. thought was going to get drafted. Can uh, I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay. So do you think possibly that last year when the NFL and especially guys who are connected to the NFL, like the 
the Mortensons and the Schefters and the and the um, and all the NFL.com guys and the Mayocks, when they all overvalued those big slow receivers or big fast receivers who can't run routes and don't know how to catch the football and put them in their top five, do you think that do you think that the NFL collectively kind of and indivi- they were individually doing this, but collectively went oh. Maybe we don't know how to look at these guys. Maybe we need to be a little more cautious about what we're doing here. Maybe they question themselves a little bit. I don't know. Probably not, but it, it made me wonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I, I do think it's a legitimate question because I do think you know it seemed to be the consensus about this draft class, and I know some people thought differently, but the consensus seemed to be we knew there wasn't going to be a lot of first rounders. It just, that was the narrative building leading up to the draft. But most people thought it was a very deep and talented draft class of wide receivers. And I don't think before the draft happened, you would have seen a lot of people thinking Emmanuel Hall, Anthony Johnson, Keelan Doss, you know, uh, David Sills, Antoine Wesley, you know, all those guys I think most people would have thought would have been drafted. And then in addition to the two guys we already talked about, Stanley Morgan Jr. and Preston Williams. So there seems to be like a lot of guys that for whatever reason, I don't, you know, you almost wonder if the NFL team struggled to differentiate between a lot of these guys and we're like, we're going to pivot to a different position and then we're going to hit the UDFA period hard because we might not think there's much difference between the guy we're going to get as a UDFA or a guy we're going to get in the fourth or fifth round. And that's, that's another question that I had that maybe they looked at this wide receiver class and thought there was a lot of talented guys, but did, had a struggle to differentiate between them. And maybe it was part of, they saw how many of the guys flamed out the year before or for whatever reason and said, we're going to go to a different position and we're going to get a UDFA wide receiver that we had a pretty similar grade on to the guys who were going in round four, round five, or definitely in round six and round seven. And that's why there were so many guys in the UDFA period of wide receivers that I think nobody expected to see there. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I think that's an excellent explanation of, of the situation and, and the possibilities in terms of the thought processes there. And, and I think wide receiver, you know, listen, running back, if, if, if a guy gets an opportunity, we could always see them make dramatic move up the depth chart and get that. But I feel like wide receivers with today's NFL, with teams going so much four wide, five wide, teams are carrying those six wide receivers pretty regularly. A lot of teams that I do think it really opens up the, scenario where wide receiver probably as much as any position you might have a fighting chance better at wide receiver than most positions as a UDFA guy because you know a lot of teams don't have five six guys who they invested a lot of resources in so there's always usually those opportunities and spots I know as a Giants fan right now the after Sterling Shepard and Golden Tate it's it's everyone's got a shot so Reggie White Jr you know they have Alex Wesley in there you know like those guys are just being thrown into the mix and who are they competing with Benny Fowler Corey Coleman, who's kind of flamed out, Cody Latimer. I mean, so it's not like the Giants are attached very strongly to Latimer or Coleman or Fowler, that it opens up the door for some of these UDFA guys. You know, and I think, you know, that's just one team. I'm sure there's a lot of teams if you if we really went through around. Denver Broncos and Jawan Winfrey. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, this this team throughout the NFL that there's multiple wide receiver spots open, probably, you know, at least one, two, and in some cases, three that are totally up for the grabs, you know, so I think we're going to see a lot more UDFA guys at the wide receiver position than years past make rosters and maybe even move their way up the depth chart. And that's going to be kind of fun for people like us who, you know, follow the college game and, and, and get do so much for the draft and watch so many of these college wide receivers. It'll be nice to see some more, you know, of these guys make NFL rosters and see, you know, how they progress and develop hopefully in the future. So it'll be fun. So Matt, thank you so much. This was an absolute blast. Thank you for doing both parts. I know you give up a lot of time. Uh, so greatly appreciated here. It's always a blast having you on the show. Uh, and you know what? Maybe maybe we don't even have to wait to next draft season. Maybe if you watch some of the college guys over the summer, we could even do something by the end of the summer. Just, you know, our early look at, at sure. some prospects would be a blast as well. So thank you so much. Hey, man, it's always my pleasure. We have a good time doing this, you know, and, and I'm I'm really grateful that I get to do this with you guys. You know, it seems like on an annual, you know, a few times a year type of thing. So, so that's awesome. And, uh, you know, thanks again. Absolutely. Guys, make sure if you're not, you are subscribed to the RSP Film Room, checking out all those videos. Make sure you're purchasing uh, the RSP. You get the all the, the stuff pre-draft and then all the additional extra post-draft coverage as well. Uh, so much great scouting reports, rankings, descriptions of these players uh, broken down in as much detail as you could possibly imagine. Uh, so make sure you get over. Matt, just tell the audience again that the website is just what? Sure, you can find you can download it at mattwaldman.com. You just um, you when you purchase it by PayPal, you you create a login and a password. It'll take you back to the site. You log you log in and you can download the RSP pre-draft and post-draft um, into PDF form. You get both for the price of twenty one ninety five. And guys, also make sure you're checking out Matt's podcast. It is excellent stuff there. Great guests and, and the solo pods when he does them as well. So so much information uh, to digest. Really outstanding uh, knowledge and content being covered there as well. So on behalf of Matt, on behalf of our sound and tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.